You are listening to excerpts from the third annual meeting of the H.L. Mencken Club, held in Baltimore, Maryland, in October of 2010. The theme of this year's meeting was PC, the Future of an Illusion. We now present to you talks from the first panel of the conference. This panel was titled PC Around the World and features Grant Havers, Derek Turner, Ilana Mercer, and Sergio Trikovic. The second talk from this panel is titled Britain, the Rule of Cool Britannia and was given by Derek Turner. Good morning. Thank you very much to Richard Spencer and everybody else who's helped to put this conference together. I'm delighted to be here. I've been asked to speak this morning about Cool Britannia. I have to report that Britain isn't at all cool, but sweating clamorly with a kind of contagious brain fever, the virus of political correctness. In Britain, people rather pride themselves on being free. As John Dryden wrote rather pompously in 1695, Oh, give me liberty! For even if paradise were my prison, still I would long to leap its crystal walls. There is a strong strand of national DNA which makes Englishmen emote about the mother of parliaments and believe their homes are their castles. Many still get choked up about the Battle of Britain and turn out by the millions for royal weddings and royal funerals. There is a kind of perverse individualism in England which has been one of its most important traits and which has often been of great service to the world. These instincts power a grumbling, if largely ineffectual, resistance to the growing power of the therapeutic state. Most people in Britain are small-c conservatives by almost any yardstick. Even those working-class Englishmen who regrettably vote for the Labour Party often combine that bad habit with having hard-line views on immigration, the death penalty and the monarchy. Their views are reflected in genuinely independent print media with articles in The Sun, The Mail, The Express and The Telegraph, which are a cause of constant concern to the kind of people who like to be constantly concerned. <laughs> Yet paradoxically in Britain, the power of PC often seems stronger than in many other countries. This may be a subjective perspective, but it, it is very difficult to imagine our present government doing a Sarkozy on the gypsies, or doing a Silvio Berlusconi with his female ministers. Part of the reason for PC's power in Britain is simply because organised minorities always prevail over disorganised majorities. PC has a focus and an internal logic all of its own, <clears throat> which makes it push aside obstacles, like, like an alcoholic heading to the bar. Most people want a quiet life above anything else, and faced with relentless pressure, they will simply move aside, like we move away from a boring person at a dinner party. It may sound like a slightly odd thing to say, but even Tory politicians are often apolitical in the sense of not being interested in abstract ideas. Traditionally, Tories have believed in concrete things, things which, don't need to be, which they can feel and therefore don't need to be examined, let alone fixed. The 18th century Tory philosopher, Sam Johnson, when asked what he thought of Bishop Barclay's theory that the physical world did not exist, kicked a stone and said, Sir, I refute it thus. Dr. Johnson's is the true voice of Tory England, rooted in the real, dedicated to what is rather than what could be or what might be. George Canning, the Tory Prime Minister, incidentally one of the co-founders of the Quarterly Review, put it very well. It is the business of the legislator to remedy practical grievances, not to run after theoretical perfection. So the default philosophy of England is a kind of permanent pragmatism. But the problem with pragmatism is that it is only practical when everyone is pragmatic. Faced with blind fanaticism, it falls to pieces. 
When a few decide they will no longer play by the old rules, those who remain sitting politely around the board find themselves irrelevant. Conservatives have therefore, rather unfortunately, tended to ignore the exotic new ideas emanating from Frankfurt, from Paris, or the Berkeley campus of UCLA. They were utterly unprepared for the Gramscians, relativists, and the red-greenists who saw their chance to take power and took it when Tory MPs were still saying that they would never say chair when they meant chairman. PC is sold to the public as simply a means of ensuring fair play and good manners, and these things matter greatly to people in Britain. Fairness has become a cliché appropriated by all parties, although usually it is a fig leaf for some new tax confiscation or extension of state power. For example, the government-funded Equality and Human Rights Commission has just released a 48-page report called How Fair is Britain? 48 pages of barely disguised threats about everything from black education in the inner cities to mental health in the outer Hebrides. They seem to be implying there's some connection between these two items. But long before such misuse, it has been considered not cricket to cast aspersions on other people's physical appearance, or even to ask questions about other people's physical appearance, or their religion, their social status, their habits, or their erotic proclivities. This gives the English their unique talent for diplomacy and understatement. Britain is a country where even the deepest hatreds are often disguised in dignified language. For example, in Parliament, where MPs, however ghastly they may be, are referred to invariably as honourable members, Sometimes the mask slips. During a 19th century House of Commons debate on Irish Home Rule, one excited MP shouted across the floor of the House, the honourable and gallant member who has just spoken is a coward and a liar. <laughs> Those who go along with PC premises often seem genuinely to believe in them as a means not only of coming to terms with a constantly changing country, but as a means of social betterment. As the senior BBC reporter Andrew Marr said in 1999, I firmly believe that repression can be a great civilising influence for good. Other people go along with PC codes as a means of preempting likely future legislation or future-proofing themselves with new target audiences. Last year, a bakery in Glasgow installed Muslim-style toilets at its factory. The company had no Muslim employees and had no plans to employ any. The chief executive was simply trying to second-guess what he thought would probably soon be a legal requirement. Last month, British Airways in-flight catering company announced it would only supply halal meat for long-haul long flights. They said this was purely a matter of cost and convenience, but no doubt they and BA also had one eye on the growing Muslim population in Europe. To these literal bean counters, it is a matter of cold-blooded calculus in which the wishes of non-Muslims and the need to avoid cruelty to animals are weighed against the desirability of appealing to new customers. In similar vein, some of Britain's largest banks now offer Islamic financial products, like zero-interest mortgages, which of course are not available to non-Muslims. PC also fits in with some sides of the British character which are rather less attractive. The smug certitude, the censoriousness and the millenarianism which once fueled the Puritans. It has been observed that the British left owes more to Methodism than to Marxism. And the folk singer Billy Bragg often parallels, draws parallels between the levelers of the 17th century and the egalitarians of today. There is an angry dogmatism and a lack of perspective about PC fundamentalists, very similar to that of the, of the Puritan preachers whom even Cromwell found excruciating. Viewed in this way, PC is not really new, it's just that the targets are new. The main difference is now that once where the curtain-twitching sneaks complained about the unorthodox, now they only complain about the orthodox. PC is really much more of an attitude than a philosophy.
The head of the Equality and Human Rights Commission, Trevor Phillips, is a man who has made a very nice living out of being the right colour in the right place at the right time. He is lucky enough to receive an annual stipend of £112,000 from the state to help him subvert the assumptions on which the state has been built. Now, it may be difficult to believe that this very useful public servant once said something interesting. In a talk chiding racist white Britons, Phillips told them sternly that it was time they came out of their comfort zone. It was a very revealing comment because the whole point of PC is almost literally to make people feel uncomfortable in their skins. PC is a bit like eczema. It's unsightly and embarrassing, but it's fun to scratch. <laughs> Even now, there are Tories who think it's sufficient to discount PC as something which is so ludicrous it can be safely ignored. They say PC carries within itself it's the seeds of its own destruction. And all we need to do is to privatise the BBC and shrink the government and let the allegedly inexorable logic of the market wreak its revenge. It is correct that PC carries its own cyanide pill. But the, mod, the mad maunderings of the 1980s so-called loony left have become mainstream morality, despite all the proud and no doubt sincere rhetoric of Margaret Thatcher and her cohorts. It has been well said that the Conservatives have often been in power during the post-war period, but very, have, have often been in office during the post-war period, but very rarely been in power. While incoming Conservative governments deal with the economic disasters they are traditionally bequeathed by outgoing Labour governments, they have neither the time nor the, nor the imagination to fight on the cultural home front. They seldom even make any effort to repeal damaging legislation passed while they were in opposition. The result is what the late Alfred Sherman called the ratchet effect, whereby the culture becomes ever less civilised, no matter who happens to be residing at number 10 Downing Street. After 1997, when the Conservatives went down in disastrous defeat to Tony Blair, the Conservative Party hierarchy gradually got the, allowed themselves to be persuaded that voters had rejected them because they were seen as a nasty party a party that was racist, sexist, homophobic, and generally boorish. They have been frantically rebranding themselves ever since, until one day, about two years ago, they suddenly woke up to find they had become palatable to the broadcast media. Most journalists now appear to take on trust David Cameron's campaign trail claimed that, whether you're Labour, Liberal Democrat, or Conservative, we're all motivated by pretty much the same progressive aims. One of the last acts of Gordon Brown's government was the Equality Act, passed in April after a hasty and half-hearted debate now sitting on the statute books like an IED in Hellmann province, waiting for the first innocent passerby. The act is designed to equalise male and female pay, even where there is no direct comparison between jobs or length of service. It is also intended to outlaw employers from discriminating against homosexuals, transsexuals and the, and the disabled. And it will introduce into English law the concepts of indirect discrimination and third-party harassment. Public sector bodies awarding contracts to private firms will now choose suppliers partly on the basis of their equality policies and corporate responsibility. As well as this, an employee who is being harassed by another employee because of a non-work-related matter can now sue his employer. One brave backbench Tory MP attracted hostile headlines in The Guardian last month when he apologised to the Conservative conference for what was likely to ensue because of the act they had failed to stop. This well-meaning intervention is, of course, insufficient it is also likely to be the only Tory response. Not only are the Tories now dependent on Liberal Democrats' support in Parliament, but they believe in all this stuff themselves. Like all PC laws in all, all countries, the Equality Act is counterintuitive and Kafka-esque. But that, in a way, is the whole point. One of PC's defining characteristics and survival mechanisms is amorphousness. As soon as you've got used to a particular provision and worked out ways of getting around it, it suddenly assumes a different shape. The targets, the thinking, the terminology all change and it slides away like some slippery monster. 
Like all revealed religions, the PC cult has its cunning interpreters who are always maneuvering and uh, maneuvering and monitoring to maintain the mon monopoly on morality. You cannot now stay out of trouble however hard you try. I mentioned earlier the custom of simply ignoring other people's race or religion. But even this hands-off approach has now become offensive and unacceptable. We are expected now to notice race, religion and sexuality and always take them into account, except when we're not supposed to. I hope that's clearer to you than it is to me. Institutions which at some point have been accused of racism include the royal family, the armed forces, the civil service, environmental campaigners, the Women's Institute and the Salvation Army. A classic example of PC neuroticism is that elicited by the comedian Sasha Baron Cohen, whom you probably know better as Borat. Before he invented Borat, Cohen is well known on British television for a character called Ali G. Cohen is white, but because he wore what is euphemistically called urban clothing, spoken of what is politely called street, and asked ridiculous questions, he was assumed by his white celebrity interviewees to be black. Ali G once asked Buzz Aldrin, will man ever walk on the sun? Aldrin took some time to recover from the question, and then he was floored again when it would follow up with, not even in the winter. <laughs> Leftist commentators simply did not know how to react to this comedy of embarrassment. They were horrified by such a negative depiction of a certain type of black man. Should such portrayals be permitted at all, they asked, because they fed into white stereotypes of blacks. Should even a comedy character be allowed to refer to women as bitches and homosexuals as batty boys? Should they relish exposure of the interviewee's confused bias, their willingness simultaneously to believe the worst of blacks and to cut them unlimited slack? Or was it just a brilliantly funny joke that should be enjoyed? Yet, if they just laughed along, weren't they becoming rather like those right-wing yahoos whom they hated, who thought Ali G represented every black man? However Jesuitical they tried to be, this is one, the one circle that nobody could square. There are any number of these unsquareable circles of the PC cosmos. Feminism versus Islam. Feminism versus black rappers, animal rights versus Islam, black evangelicals versus humanists, black evangelicals versus homosexuals, and so on, almost endlessly. By PC's logic, all philosophical positions are simultaneously true and false. As PC progresses, morphs and subdivides like amoebae, questions like these are becoming impossible to, uh, to ignore. The only time it is pleasant to think about PC is when its disciples are knifing each other in the back. In 2000, the Parliamentary Labour Party was accused of racism for not having enough black candidates for winnable seats. The following year, Tony Blair was accused of racism and sexism because Downing Street's special advisers were all white men. And last year, half of the boards of directors of the Equalities and Human Rights Commission all resigned en masse, denouncing Trevor Phillips as a racist, a sexist and a homophobe. The good news is that there is no solidarity amongst the PC in-crowd, just a continual jostling for advantage and a perpetual repositioning. It's a ferment of biting and kicking like a bag of rats. Those in public life are only as good as their last outbreak of angst. The conservative media have a slightly schizophrenic relationship with PC. Once a week reactionaries at the Sun, Mail, Express and Telegraph will write columns expressing views almost identical to those expressed by old school Tories, UKIP members or BNP members. But those same articles will often contain intemperate tirades against the so-called far right, using vitriolic language that is never ever used about even the most extreme group on the left. They're trying to have it both ways, giving their readers the red meat they desire, whilst hinting to the left-wing invigilators that although they may be outspoken, they are definitely not extreme. 
The Daily Mail is the most schizophrenic of these papers. It is a mid-market tabloid, which has, has become a byword for intolerance and obscurantism amongst the liberal left. In the mid-1990s, the paper was threatened with legal action under race laws for several articles that had carried on black crime in London. Many felt it was not entirely coincidental that almost overnight it took up the cudgels on behalf of Stephen Lawrence, a black teenager killed in South East London in 1993, with a passion and a certitude it had never evinced for in, in relation to any previous murder and has never evinced since. The continuing fallout from that case illustrates British PC at its most sclerotic. It is a saga that still reverberates through British society 17 years after Stephen was stabbed in South East London and which has produced many more losers than winners. One of the few winners was a black Anglican vicar called John Sentamu. He was one of the panel which published the 1999 Macpherson report into the killing. The report concluded that institutional racism on the part of the police was the reason the boys' killers were never convicted and had made many draconian recommendations, some of which were too strong even for the then Labour Home Secretary. Sentamu went on from this great triumph to become the first black bishop in the Church of England and an all-too-frequent commentator on racism amongst the pews and flower arrangements. Then he became the Archbishop of York, the second most, the second most senior Anglican in the world, installed in York's medieval cathedral in a ceremony marked by semi-cloud dancing and drumming. And now all this Trotskyist past is forgiven and forgotten. Thanks to a single speech he made two years ago on why the English ought to celebrate St George's Day, he is now generally regarded, even in the Daily Telegraph, as a kind of cuddly cultural conservative and an incipient national treasure. But most of those caught up in the Lawrence case were losers, with at least one developing a kind of Stockholm Syndrome. This is the sad story of a senior policeman in the case, John Grieve, a highly experienced officer with academic qualifications and commendations for physical bravery and a spotless service record. Yet even this considerable man was broken at last, writing an extraordinary article in the Daily Telegraph which began, I am a racist. I must be because Sir William Macpherson of Cluny said that I am. I found inside myself evidence of subtle prejudice, preconception and indirect discrimination. I'm for change inside myself and in the behaviour of others. It was literally pathetic performance worthy of a Salem confession or a Maoist brainwashing. Like Winston Smith in 1984, poor sad John Grieve had learned to love Big Brother. Britain, the erstwhile empire of empiricism, is now really the English patient. The PC virus has not yet run its course. As an 18th century MP put it, the cup of our troubles is running over, but alas, it is not yet full. The virus is not in itself life-threatening. It is a mere psychomatic delusion which may simply burn itself out of the body politic, and it may even already be dying. Your 9-11 and our 7-7 made the media talk about Islam and race in a way they would never done before. And now it is commonplace to come across sentiments in the mass media, which before 2001 would have been confined to the furthest right fringes. Speaking at the Labour conference this month, Ed Miliband said the party hadn't done enough about immigration. And that huge hall full of some of the least rational people in England made on a single murmur of protest. PC causes simply, sometimes simply fade away. The looming public spending cuts will also slim down PC as a byproduct of slimming down the state. But causes which fade from view can flare up again, and probably will, because hypersensitivity and mutual distrust are not, distrust are not passing phases, but intrinsic aspects of diversity. And now there are implanted PC antibodies which will fight back against surgery. Like the school governors who this month forced a deputy headmistress out of her job after she told the Tory conference that schools in England were rotten with the culture of excess and mediocrity. A good example of this mediocrity was in the papers this week. A survey of 2,000 secondary school children revealed that 1 in 20 thought the Spanish Armada was a tapas dish. 
greatest danger is that PC will only seem to disappear because we will have become so accustomed to it that we will not even notice its persistence. I read, I read, I read recently in one of the left-wing papers, I forget which one, an article which actually said, it may not be PC to say this, but somebody has to stand up for the gay community. <laughs> if, if there is a possibility of escape from this Kafkaesque nightmare, it lies in events like this and in related websites and publications. I understand there is something of a groundswell of opinion of non-PC opinions amongst young people in Britain. People active on the Tory right tell me that more and more under-21s and under-30s are turning up to their meetings. Thanks to the web, and also because all of our problems are now becoming so big they cannot be ignored or put under the carpet, the most intelligent amongst the young may be starting to realise what needs to be done, or at least to see what, what has, is happening. The more rebellious amongst those will soon see that the easiest way to horrify their parents will be to espouse extreme right-wing views. The best amongst the young may be becoming bored with the suburban conventions of their parents. Finally, although conservatives always like to imagine the worst, we should remember that things can and sometimes do change very quickly under the pressure of events. It is admittedly unlikely from the perspective of today, but nonetheless it is possible that someday quite soon we will wake up from our uneasy dreams to find that the sun has come out and the fever has abated. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To find out more about the H.L. Mencken Club, visit the website at hlmencconclub.org. At the website, you can subscribe to the podcast and also find the full audio of the conference available for download per individual talk, including question and answer segments not heard here.